the uh, kings that attacked Gibeon, and uh, Joshua came to defend Gibeon and to uh, knock out those uh, kings. Um, really, what you've got is kind of a southern campaign in chapter 10, where he's conquering some of the uh, strongest enemies in the south, uh, capturing some of the stronger cities in the south, and uh, so forth. And uh, then what we're going to see in chapter 11 is going to be a northern campaign, as some of the northern kings will uh, form a coalition and really try to, uh, you know, conquer this new threat, and we'll see how that one goes. Um, but if we stopped uh, ready for 40, then would somebody read 40 to 43? Then Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly, utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. <coughs> Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. This is the summary of this southern campaign. And he describes this in different ways. In 40, it's really by region. The hill country, the Negev, the lowland, the slopes, etc. So he's kind of dividing it up by geographical region. In 41, he describes it more by like the boundaries. And in 42, he mentions the kings and their lands. So you can kind of look at it different ways, but basically, it's what he says at the end of 42. The Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. No question about it. It wasn't because Joshua was the greatest you know, military man, or they had the greatest firepower, or whatever. It's because the Lord was determining these events, and he had promised that Abraham and his descendants would get this land, and so they do. So, that's the summary of the southern campaign. Questions or comments? This is not the same Goshen? It is not. Okay. Don't believe so. I thought that was in Egypt. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it seemed like it would Actually, be it's in Kentucky, near Louisville. <laughs> okay. How long did this take? That I do not know, <laughs> but I don't get the impression that it takes all that long. I mean, depending on how you read this whole thing, it's almost like everything happened in that one really long day, which seems really unlikely, but... Yeah, I don't know that they got all that. That would have been a <laughs> really, really long day. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, I, to me, they, they defeated them in the day, but as far as, you know, going and taking each city, major city, I would assume that continued to take time, even just traveling from one to the other. At least two days, because I see, says on the second day this was captured. So, mm -hmm. so woo, at least two days. Right. All right. Um, so chapter eleven, um, you know, very parallel in a lot of ways to chapter ten, in that it starts with this idea of enemy kings allying together to oppose the Israelites' invasion, uh, kind of a head king uh, <coughs> sort of heading things up, as uh, you had with Adonai Zedek back in chapter 10, so you're going to have one in chapter 11 like that. 
certainly the emphasis on God or, you know, repelling the attacks. And, uh, you know, and the, and the result of, of Israel conquering cities and land. So, so this is kind of, you know, in one sense, sort of a, a repeat of chapter 10, but with different characters and a little different uh, details. So would somebody read chapter 11, verses uh, 1 to 9? Then it came about when Jabin king of Hazor heard of it, that he sent to Jobab king of Madden, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshath, and to the kings who were of the north in the hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, in the hill country, and Hivite at the foot of Hermon, in the land of Mizpah, and they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as Great Sidon and whatever in the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Okay, so you've got Jabin, king of Hazor, uh, organizes this uh, coordinated attack. Now, we think Jabin is probably a throne name for the king of Hazor, since uh, there's a Jabin, for example, is the uh, <coughs> king of Hazor that uh, Barak and Deborah fight against uh, over in Judges. It, so it would be maybe a name like Pharaoh, you know, which really means like the emperor of Egypt. Or maybe a name like Ben-Hadad, where you had Ben-Hadad the first, the second, the third, and you know, so forth and so on. Uh, at least the fact that you've got you know, the same name in different eras for the same place probably means something like that's going on. But anyhow, he organizes uh, these kings uh, of all that northern territory, from the Canaanite on the east and, and the west, and the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, the Hivites, I mean, they're... All the ites are there. And uh, there's a lot of them. How many of them are there? As many people as the sand that is on the seashore. Yeah, that's a lot. You know, that seems to be the common uh, standard of measurement when you've got so many people you can't count them. You know, as many as the sand on the seashore. And a lot of horses and chariots. So they are well armed, well equipped. This is a formidable opponent. Uh, and what are they going to do about that? I mean, you would not expect Israel's got the strength to withstand an army like this. So the Lord says to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. I will deliver them slain. You know, God is the one who's got the power. We so often, we, we, don't, we, we limit ourselves by our power. We're trying to fight the Lord's battle, battles with our own abilities and our own strength instead of relying on the Lord. So we think, I can't do this. Well, you're right. But through the Lord, we can. And so that's what they do. So what God tells Joshua to do, I'll deliver all of them. 
you just hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. You know, that's kind of Joshua's job, you know, in this. God gave the victory, and he does the mop-up operation. And so that's exactly what happened. Joshua and the people attacked them suddenly, probably a surprise attack, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them, and pursued them, they killed them, and they hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. So Joshua is an instrument of the Lord. This is one of these deals, as everywhere in the Bible, you see God is the one doing it, and yet human beings weren't passive in this. They, they were doing a surprise attack. They were fighting. They were, you know, executing and, and doing all that God said. Do, we, we get this idea that it's either God or us, but it's not. It's both. It's God ultimately doing it, but he intends for us to be active and do the part that he assigns to us. And so they conquer the the uh, backbone of the northern opposition here. Comments and questions? What, what does it mean to hamstring the horse? I figured Chris would know that. I don't know. Isn't that taking like uh, the muscle in the ankle? And cutting it? Cutting the back of the leg, I think, to where the horse can't run. Okay. Yeah, well, I had them up in the air. Oh! 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 They were slow roasting them. So that they couldn't go into battle? Could they still work them? I don't think so. You would think they couldn't walk very well after that. They can walk, they can't run or... Well, if they could walk, can they pull a plow or something? Like Siri. I don't know. Because the hamstring is this muscle back here, the back of the thigh. Or at least on humans. Hey, it mentioned Wikipedia talks about how you hamstring horses in the Bible. Whoa, let's hear okay. it. Hamstringing is a method of crippling a person or animal so that they cannot walk properly by severing tendons in the thigh. It incapacitates. In the thigh? Rendering them incapable of effective movement. That's not where your hamstring is, is uh-huh. it? Yeah, your hamstring's in the back. I thought it was oh, in your calf. It's, this, oh. it's <coughs> the muscle right back here. Okay. It's, in, it's in the back of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, rendering chariot horses lame by hamstringing is mentioned in the Bible. That was profound. This is seen as a positive use of hamstringing because it prevents the horses from being used in warfare. <laughs> there we have it. Wasn't very, it. This article is not very descriptive. <laughs> but well, we got the gist. I um, can't figure out why they would want to hamstring them and not kill them. I mean, what's the difference? Unless they could use them in some way. Could a hamstring they horse still be in some way? Well, they burned those. Not if they burned them. Maybe it was like a saying. I, mean, I don't know. I suppose they could eat the horses. <laughs> I don't know. Were, were the horses clean animals? No. So they couldn't properly eat them. I'm looking up another article, but it sounds like the horses could still like they can still they could still walk. Yeah. But it'd be like they have a permanent limp, so they're not going to ever be good for long distance riding or doing the chariot stuff or being a war horse and jumping up and. How would you things. actually accomplish it? Like, would you just take a knife and? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Well. If you missed, you'd cut off the whole leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<coughs> so anyhow, that that was good though. Your uh, perception, yeah, I had never well, thought about that. That was hilarious. <laughs> That's really. Cute. I'm trying to vision it. <laughs> we appreciate that. Well, That's do you right. no? I asked. Well, that's what I was trying to figure out. Why do you have all these horses up in the air? <laughs> <laughs> that would be really wait, wait, wait. Um, Oh, where did it go? It was saying something. It was just going. If you find it, check back with us. They were, but were made incapable of being used in battle. Really I know, but I was trying to see if it said. Well, you could still use them. If for you it? could still use them, like I'm trying to see if you can still use them as a plow horse. All right. Well, how about uh, ten to fifteen? And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left to breathe, and he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds, except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons of Israel took as their plunder, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. From what I have read, Hazor was one of the greatest cities of Palestine at that time, <coughs> probably the largest in land area. So defeating Hazor was a big deal. And they went and actually burned the city of Hazor. Now that was not what they did normally. I believe the only other two cities we know that they burned were Jericho and I. I think uh, the others, they would destroy the people, but then they would come in and live in the city. You may remember Deuteronomy 6.10, there's some other passages that say the same thing, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill and so forth, they would actually just take over those things and so they wouldn't have to build their houses, they wouldn't have to you know, start their vineyards and things like that. For the most part, they would just take over and occupy, but in the case of Hazor, Jericho, and I, they, they burned them. And uh, so, But they're doing what God has asked them to do as far as wiping out the uh, people in these cities God intended the Israelites to uh, punish the Canaanite cities. Uh, this was also a protection for the Israelites, so they would not be corrupted by the influence of these Canaanite cities. Comments and questions? Why didn't they burn cities that were on mounds? I uh, don't know that there was any significance to the fact they were on mounds uh, to why they didn't burn them. They burned Hazor, and it was on a mound. Right. The idea of the mound is they've built the city <coughs> and rebuilt and rebuilt, so it becomes what we call a tell. Mm -hmm. You know that. Uh, so most of the city were, cities were on mountains. That's what a city would have been. They, the only one they burned was Hazor. Most of them they occupied. Right. So I don't think he's saying they didn't burn the ones on mounds as opposed to the other ones. Ah, okay, gotcha. 
I don't know why, but I had the impression when you read it that like Joshua was doing stuff that maybe not the people, but is Joshua meaning yeah, I think so. I think Joshua was the leader, and so we're talking about what he did, but not that he did it single-handedly. He had the army with him. See, like 13. Israel did not burn any cities that sit on the mans except Hazaron, which Joshua burned. So sort of like, I don't know, it just seemed to me like there's a lot of emphasis on Joshua did this and Joshua did that, and like the sons of Israel did different things. And like, like that wasn't necessarily a good thing? No, I don't okay. think that's the case. Okay. No, I think I think when they use Joshua and Israel, it's really interchangeable. So I think he's saying, you know, however Israel did not burn any cities that turned on their mounds except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned. So that's that. I think that was the will of the Lord. God, God mostly wanted them to occupy the cities, but I don't know if it's because of Hazor being the city of Jabin, the leader of this, you know, uh, coalition, or because it was so important a city or whatever, but I, I assume that God's behind their burning <coughs> and not the others. <coughs> other thoughts? 16 to 23. Thus Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Holic that rises towards Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gideon. <coughs> they took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might utter, that He might destroy them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country of Hebron, from Zephyr, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Judah utterly, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod some remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel <coughs> according to their divisions by their tribes, thus the land had rest for more. Okay, so we're describing the territory he conquered in verse 16, hill country, Negev, etc., and so sort of describing the, the various areas or regions and kind of uh, delineating them in verse 17, all their kings. Um, and this took a period of time to conquer all of them. The only city that they didn't that made a treaty with them was that deal with the Gibeonites, which we knew about from chapter 9. Um, because God hardened the hearts of the Canaanites to where they would resist Israel and they would be utterly destroyed. You know, this was part of their punishment. They were wicked people. God wanted them not to make some deal with Israel. He wanted them to fight Israel and be conquered by them. So God hardens heart as a punishment for the wickedness of these nations. Joshua cut off the Anakim from all the area of Israel. There weren't any Anakim left there, but there were in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod in verse 22, which we know as cities of what uh, country? The Philistines. 
And we happen, that's a really handy uh, mention here, because that sets us up for something that happens later on. Yes, Goliath, who was a giant, an Anakim, from the city of Gath. Yes, so this fits right into 1 Samuel, as far as that part's concerned. And then he just summarizes in verse 23, he took the whole land like God had spoken, and he gives it for an inheritance. That's basically summarizing the whole book. We just saw he took the land, now we're about to see where he gives it out as an inheritance. That, those are Joshua's two jobs. Joshua did not exterminate all the Canaanites. There were some left for the tribes to do. Joshua broke the you know, strongest part of the resistance and divided the land. And then that's that. Alright, comments or questions on chapter 11. So Anakim are giants? Yes. Yeah, that's the idea. I think that you have that in Numbers 13. Yes, you do. In Numbers 13, verse 33... There we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the <laughs> Nephilim. Uh, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So when they speak of the sons of Anak, they're speaking of these giants that they felt like grasshoppers compared to. Anakim would just be the plural of Anak. So the Anakites, you know, we'd say, or something like that. Uh, so, I, that that's one reference that would tell you that. Any idea how long this took? No. Other than that it was a long time. Yeah, it was a long time. It wasn't <laughs> also in the one day. It also wasn't in the one day. So. <laughs> well, do we have any idea how old Joshua was when we do know that? We know how old he was when he died. He was 110, was I believe. Do what? And how old was he when he entered the Uh, over 60. 80. Do we know how old he was? Mm-hmm. I was thinking that... He was 110 when he died in 2429. I don't know if we know how old Joshua was when he entered the land. We know how old Caleb was. How old was Caleb? I think that's what I'm thinking. Caleb was 80-something, but I'm not sure how I know that. Because I'm thinking that Caleb was 85 and I think that's right. was talking about how he was still a strong I believe there's something about Caleb here that may tell us that. Uh, but I, uh, we'll have to come across it. Wouldn't you assume they're roughly the same age? Wouldn't be surprised. So if you go from <clears> that, and he was 110 when he died... That would have been 25 years. So it would be less than 25 years. But but whether or not he's exactly the same age as Caleb, we don't know. (coughs) Yeah, I don't think this was a several generation thing. Chapter 14, um, we've got Caleb saying that he is 85. Which verse is there? Verse 10. There you go. That's what we know. Caleb I'm still as strong today as it was the day Moses sent me. Woo-hoo. But what we know is Joshua had to be 60 or over. 
because yes. he was at least over 20. But you would assume he probably wasn't in his 20s to be selected as the leader of the tribe, to go in as a spy. So, but evidently, Caleb was like 45 when he was sent in. I was just trying to do the math on that. <laughs> 45 plus 20 plus 40 would be 85. That's not my strong suit. <laughs> Alright. Well, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated, and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon as far as Mount Hermon, and all the Arabah to the east. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and ruled from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, both the middle of the valley and half of Gilead, even as far as the brook Jabbok, the border of the sons of Ammon, and the Arabah as far as the sea of Chinaroth, toward the east, and as far as the sea of the Arabah, even the Salt Sea, eastward toward Beth Jeshemoth, and on the south at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant, remnant of Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei, and ruled over Mount Hermon, and Salakai, and all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites, and the Machiathites, and half of Gilead, as far as the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the sons of Israel defeated them, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh as a possession. Okay, so we are now summarizing the kings that were killed and the lands that were taken. And we start that by talking about the kings on the east side of the Jordan River. There were two in particular. We read about those even back in Numbers when they came up. And they went around Edom, they went around Moab, because Edom Moab wouldn't let them pass through. They tried to go around Sihon, but Sihon came out to battle. And so they conquered Sihon, and that territory that he describes in verses 2 and 3, and they conquered Og and his territory in verses 4 and 5. Uh, that was all under Moses. He, he defeated them. So that's a part of the victories. That's a part of the... Um, you know, conquest of the land that started before they ever crossed the Jordan River. Uh, and Moses gave it to the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Those two and a half tribes are the ones that occupied that. You can see there's kind of a parallel between Moses and Joshua. Because in 1 through 6, it's the conquest Moses makes. In 7 and following, it's the conquest, conquests made by Joshua. There are lots of later references in the Old Testament, Sihon and Og, quite a few different passages. So those kind of are, you know, examples of the great uh, victories that God gives. Comments and questions? All right, would somebody read 7 and 8? Uh, let's say 7 to 9, and then everybody can just scan down from there. <laughs> and these are the kings of the land whom Joshua the son and the sons of Israel defeated beyond the Jordan toward the west 
from Belgad in the Valley of Lebanon, even as far as Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave it to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions, in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, on the slopes, and in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. La, 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 la. Yeah. See, all the kings, 31 in all, verse 24, several of those places you recognize, some of them you don't. He doesn't actually give the names of the kings, he just gives the names of the cities that they were ruling over. Um, so this uh, really involves from 9 to 16, 16 kings of the south, and from 17 to 24, 15 kings of the north. But this is pretty powerful stuff. I mean, uh, amazing that they were able to come in and conquer all those cities and uh, their kings. God has given an amazing victory to his people. I mean, how could they come in like this and just conquer all these kings? Really impressive. It's weird it mentions that there's one after all. Well, that way you can count them up. Mm-hmm. Are there any twos? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> it's very consistent. Every city has a king. So you think it's it because he's counting? I don't know. It just seems a little odd. How come they didn't have a like a country king, you know, a territory? Was there not? I mean, because it seems like all the other, from here on out, all the countries that attack are Egypt, which is large country, big cities, but it has a king over all of them. Babylon, you know, even... It's like Europe. Yeah, but up until this point, weren't there a lot of, like, the city-state kind of deal where each city did have its own king? Like, I'm trying to think even, like, from history class and like the city of Ur where Abraham came from and I think it was like it had its own king who kind of ruled the surrounding area and yeah you know I don't have any good knowledge of how prevalent <laughs> kings were at various periods as opposed to just kind of autonomous cities I will say when Israel came into the land under the judges they didn't really have a centralized government you know, they were more kind of a loose collection of tribes. I don't well, I know. that was because God was supposed to be their government. You know. But they didn't have kings in each city. No. They didn't really have much government, period. <laughs> Which is even worse than not having Well, it's different. I mean, you know, I don't know if it would be generally true that you tend to have smaller districts and that gradually over time builds up to a national unity and a president, a king, whatever. I don't know. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I need to know more about the history of the era and if this was common or uncommon. I don't know. I mean, there were a few great empires, Egypt, Greece, Rome. But, 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 but Greece and Rome were after, right? Right, after. yeah. But, I mean, even even like after the Roman Empire, most of Europe, with the exception of a couple places, it was city-state kind of things. You, there was a city and a little bit of area around it that was controlled, and you had all these different 
guys in what became Germany, for example, and the Prussian Empire, and, and there were all these little guys fighting for everything all the time. I think we would generally consider strong national governments to be developments in the maturity of a people. Not something that, you know, the more common thing at the beginning is more subdivided, more rivalry. But I don't know much about all that stuff, so I don't know. <coughs> Other thoughts or comments on Chapter 12? All right, well, in Chapter 13 and following, we get the division of the land. Um, and so let's go and read the first section.